Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast exists because of the paid members at decodingtv.com. Sign up to be a paid member and get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, and exclusive bonus episodes that will make just for you. Thanks to everyone at decodingtv.com who makes this podcast possible. Spies. Saboteurs. Assassins. Who've all done terrible things on behalf of the rebellion. Cassian Ander. Don't matter what you tell me or tell yourself. You'll ultimately die fighting these bastards. Wouldn't you rather give it all at once to something real? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV. I'm David Chen. Since Decoding TV began, my vision has been for this podcast and the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash decoding TV to be recapping and reviewing multiple TV shows at once with a bunch of really awesome co-hosts. And folks such as yourself can tune in to whichever ones you're interested in. We're already recapping She-Hulk Attorney at Law with Siddhartha Tlaka right now, as well as The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power with Don Marshall. And today, I'm pleased to announce that we'll be recapping Andor, the newest show set in the Star Wars universe that's premiering on Disney Plus on September 21st. And I'm so pleased to announce that I will have a brand new co-host for our recaps and reviews of Andor. He is a filmmaker, video essayist, and someone whose work has brought me a great deal of enlightenment and joy over the years. You've seen him at youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems. Patrick H. Willems, welcome to Decoding TV. David, it is a pleasure to be here. Uh, you got me. You, 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 can, uh, <laughs> you convinced me to uh, go on the internet and talk about Star Wars again. And, and all I'm going to say is there are not many people who could get me to do that. And mm. so, well, let's let's talk a little bit about that, right? So before we, so in this inaugural kickoff episode of our coverage of Andor, we are going to be discussing Rogue One, uh, the movie for which Andor is a prequel series to a Star Wars story. Uh, indeed, indeed, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Uh, so that's what is going to be the bulk of this episode of the podcast and, and YouTube video. But before we talk about that. I think it's important to talk about what our relationship has been to Star Wars over uh, the last few years and why we're talking about Andor specifically. Now, Patrick H. Willems, you alluded to it just now, but you have sworn off talking about Star Wars in any of your videos. And I guess uh, I am curious, A, why is that the case? And B, why come back to do uh, Andor on Decoding TV with me? That's a, a good question, David. And to be very clear, because I know people on the internet are going to try to be like, yeah. gotcha. Let's, um, let's clear it up right now. Let's clear it up this right now. Is, uh, back in early 2020, I, I, I proclaimed that I was – I would no longer I, – I, I was done making Star Wars videos like on my channel. 
Yes. Uh, that does not mean I can never discuss Star Wars. I, I, as much as I uh, generally avoid talking about Star Wars, doesn't mean I can't ever talk about it or or do podcasts about it. I'm just gonna. I'm just not gonna make video essays on my channel about Star Wars anymore. And why? Why was that, Patrick? Why? So why is that the case? I think like like many people. Um, in December 2019, I I experienced uh, a profound feeling of disappointment and sadness uh, watching episode nine, The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, it is my least favorite Star Wars film. And I was, I was really bummed out by that movie. And as I was sort of, uh, I guess, having like a, a uh, alcohol-fueled post-film discussion with a friend uh, about that movie and what it seems like Star Wars is now, I was really kind of, I was realizing that it seems like the way Star Wars had been going, uh, pretty much almost everything after The Last Jedi, whether it was, let's make a Han Solo origin movie, uh, let's do The Rise of Skywalker, let's make The Mandalorian, which I, I, I enjoy some of, but also largely seems to be like, you know, let's, let's, play with our action figures in a very safe place and uh and and just just use the old toy it seemed like star wars was only interested in rehashing the past and and being about how much we like old star wars and not moving forward and and very much catering to the audience that uh that that just wants things to be like they always used to be. And I'm, as much as I, I love the original trilogy, um, that's not what I'm especially interested in. Uh, and I was kind of, I kind of realized that what Star Wars currently seems to be isn't really for me. And it's a bit of a bummer, but it's, that's okay. It's, uh, I'll still watch it, uh, but I, I, I don't, I'm, I, I'm not putting the same emotional weight on it that I used to. And um and that was kind of how I've been feeling for a while. I've watched all of the Disney Plus shows or the live action ones. I'm very behind on all the animated stuff. But uh and and with the live action shows, I have enjoyed aspects of them and usually left each season of those shows feeling a little empty. Mhm. And that's mm. what I'm bringing into Andor, a show that, against all odds, I seem to be actually pretty excited to watch and talk about. Yeah. I mean, the headline story around Andor is the guy who wrote and directed Michael Clayton is making a Star Wars show, right? Michael Clayton, probably one of my favorite films of all time. It's a great and, movie. It's a really great uh, movie. Yeah. And so, and not only that, but the guy who I'm referring to, of course, is Tony Gilroy. Uh, and he's been responsible for many, many of my favorite films, uh, legendary in Hollywood as like a script doctor and knows how to refashion and save things and make them into a good story, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit for Rogue One. Uh, but he also worked on Rogue One and, and famously basically took that film over uh, and kind of ghost directed the movie. He is not a credited director on Rogue One. He's a credited One. writer. But he's a credited screenwriter. And that is a shocking fact when you consider the fact that he did not start working on the movie until after the director's cut was complete. So in order to get screenplay credit, if you are not one of the original writers, you need to have written over 50% of the script. 
and so he got screenplay credit, apparently easily won, according to him on an interview that he gave. Have and you listened so, to, to that interview have, uh, on on Brian Koppelman's have, podcast? It's it's well worth listening to. A hundred percent. He gave an interview to Brian Koppelman's The Moment podcast where he said, you know, probably like eight to ten sentences about the making of Rogue One. And I have been scrutinizing those sentences for years. So uh, anyway, he was re- responsible for Rogue One. And a lot of people love Rogue One. And I actually really enjoyed Rogue One as well. Um, but for me... Uh, everything after The Last Jedi has made me feel like this universe is not for me anymore um, for the reasons that you described. Because it's, and you actually put it really well in uh, one of your videos, uh, your, the last video that you made about <laughs> Star Wars, um, which is that it, it feels, the franchise feels more like it's interested in replaying its greatest hits over and over forever. Uh, to the extent that they're not even willing to hire new actors to play younger versions of the iconic characters, right? Like at least with that, you would, you would be kind of breathing new life into it in some way, you know? Uh, and, and kind of, Oh, interesting. A new actor's take on a classic character, but instead they're just kind of resurrecting these old characters over and over again using CG. And, uh, and with Mandalorian, I'll, I'll just say, I watched the first few episodes of Mandalorian and I quickly concluded it's not for me. Like it's just kind of, Hey, a cool Star Wars related thing that we saw, you know, for, for me, that, that was my perception. I know lots of people love Mandalorian and I don't want to like um, impugn the artistic quality of Mandalorian, but it just it just wasn't a show that I enjoyed. Hey, um, I, I've seen every episode and I have mixed feelings. Yeah. There are episodes that I loved and there are ones that uh, I, I did not enjoy very much at all. Um so yeah, it's current Star Wars, especially like this television era of Star Wars, yeah. is kind of is it, it's a complicated subject. Uh because so much of this just is about like how you feel about constantly returning to the past and you know living in this this world of nostalgia and like and wondering like how much how much like like genuine emotional satisfaction can you get out of stories that seem to largely exist to fill in minor gaps in this fictional chronology of the universe and like like again like like the obi-wan kenobi show um there there was stuff in there that i genuinely liked and at the end of the show i walked away thinking i think this was sort of pointless mm-hmm. overall because there's there's so little to actually accomplish in in w- with mm-hmm. these characters in this gap of time knowing where they have to begin and end and especially the thing that i always come back to is star wars has always exist has originally existed uh, as a live as a big budget live action property and there are star wars books and star wars comics and star wars animated shows but the most important parts of star wars uh the the ones that are that that play to like the widest audience by far are live action star wars and to me the choice is about what what stories are going to tell as a as an expensive live action movie slash show as opposed to being a comic book miniseries or a novel or something like that that speaks volumes and i and 
almost all of the live action Star Wars in the past few years, I have I have thought this could have just been a comic book series. Mm-hmm. Like why why was this the one that warranted spending all that money and hiring this incredible cast and putting all your resources into this story? Yeah. I think for me, it comes down to a few things. Uh, and uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time rehashing our Star Wars universe grievances during this episode. But I think it's just important to know like what context we are. Like we want you to know what our personal context is coming into a show like Andor. Right. So if you um, hate everything that we've said so far, yeah. maybe the show isn't for you. Maybe this podcast isn't for you. Right. Exactly right. And so uh, I think that. For me, it seemed like a lot of the stuff that was being done was fundamentally misunderstood why we enjoyed the things that we enjoyed from the original trilogy, right? Uh, things like I did the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs or the, sh- the ship did the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. And it's like, well, what if we actually showed the Kessel Run? It's like, is that, you know, it's actually kind of cooler in some ways if I don't see it you know like if i could just imagine what that even means um or how did the the millennium falcon get one in a dice game or you know like all all these kinds of things that like where honestly what was shown uh that that kind of led up to these moments that we saw in the original trilogy don't give those moments any more thematic or emotional weight and that's ideally what you want when you're doing a prequel Right when you're doing when you're creating a prequel, you want to recontextualize everything that you've already seen and be like, "Ooh, I didn't know that that was the background." Um, and that's what they attempted to do with the prequel trilogy and with uh, something like Solo, a Star Wars story, right? But they often chose not very interesting answers, in my opinion, to those questions that you might have had. Uh, and we will talk shortly about whether Rogue One does the same thing or not, but. Uh, so d- despite that kind of distaste for that kind of storytelling, what is interesting to me about Andor is it's created by somebody who's enormously talented at character-driven storytelling and by an outsider. Like this person, Tony Gilroy, has publicly said he does not revere Star Wars in any way. And uh, often that's where some of the most interesting stories come from is like outsiders who take nothing for granted and for which nothing is sacred and for which they can experiment with say having a show that doesn't have any lightsabers or something, you know, as an right. example, right? Someone who does not care about delivering fan service at all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the thing because as much as I, there are, are episodes and things of in the Mandalorian that I enjoy a lot. So much of that show feels to me like, John Favreau just loves Boba Fett and wants to play with his toys and and like it feels very much like the sort of like oh a kid who watched Empire Strikes Back over and over and over again and then bought all the bounty hunter action figures and then just is like you know playing in their bedroom with them and uh and and I'm like that's that, that's fine I obviously I see the appeal I enjoy it sometimes but that's not really what I'm coming to Star Wars for yeah, and I think the the biggest weakness, as far as I can tell, is that a lot of what Star Wars has done is rehash visuals and ideas that we've already seen. Um, it, it, it's trying to evoke feelings in you that you had when you were a child. And like, oh, I remember when I saw this thing. And so we're going to show you a thing that looks 
like it um, or that is similar to that thing and, or, and that maybe explains how that thing came to be and so on. Uh, it's a huge universe. That was one of the greatest things about Star Wars is like when you, the original, when you look at the background, it's like, oh, all these little alien creatures. And like, I wonder what their home worlds are like. And I wonder what their stories are like. And that's what I've always wanted in a Star Wars extended universe is explore these other things that they didn't have time for in the movies. And we are hoping that Andor will accomplish that. I will say as of this recording, I have seen the first three episodes and I tweeted about them uh, recently, and I am very excited about doing this podcast with you, Patrick Willems. I think we're going to have some really great combos about it. So, and David Chen, um, I have not seen any episodes yet, but based on what you, based on your reaction, with no spoilers, I, I know nothing about yeah. it. Just yeah, no based on uh, your take and takes from other friends of mine, I am I'm, I'm genuinely excited for this show. So episodes of Andor are going to debut on Wednesdays, and we are going to try to have a new uh, episode of this podcast covering Andor by the Thursday evening of that's following that week's episode. So just letting you know what the schedule is. Uh, and of course, if you're a Decoding TV paid member, we're going to try to get you access to those episodes earlier than everyone else. Um, but anyway, all that said, that's our background with Star Wars. Uh Patrick has seen basically every single Star Wars thing, live action, since Rise of Skywalker. I have not. We're both going to come into Andor uh, with high expectations and high, ho- high hopes. And we hope you're going to join us for the journey. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So all that said, why don't we dive into our conversation about Rogue One? Let's talk about it. State your name for the record. Jin Urso. Forgery of imperial documents, possession of stolen property, aggravated assault, resisting arrest. On your own from the age of 15, reckless, aggressive, and undisciplined. This is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. That was from the very first teaser trailer of Rogue One. And I think it hints at some challenges that the movie had in that virtually none of the dialogue or shots in that trailer ended up in the final film. Um, Now, I 
tweeted about this earlier and uh, somebody corrected me uh, via, via DM uh, and said that something that Gareth Edwards, the director of Rogue One, liked to do is shoot a bunch of footage that would just go into the trailer. Um, so just because it's in the trailer and not in the final film does not necessarily mean that there were problems with uh, the, the production of this movie. But there were problems with the production of this movie because there's major, there's like some like little character moments that aren't in the final film, but there's also major action sequences. There there are fully completed VFX shots in that trailer uh, where it's not just that the shots aren't in the the final movie, uh, the scene that they seem to exist in isn't in the final movie. Yeah, yeah. It was a troubled Uh, production. I, I mean- a thing that I was just thinking about when you were well, or earlier when you were talking about uh, Tony Gilroy coming in, like after the director's cut was completed, uh, writing a ton of new stuff enough to get a, a a writing credit. Is this kind of like just a a a better case scenario of what happened with Justice League? It's hmm. almost exactly the same thing of a writer-director coming in after a director's cut was done. Obviously, in that case, not working with the director. In this case, Gareth Edwards, you know, seems much more positive about the final, uh, the, the theatrical cut. But then uh, rewriting enough new material to get a co-writing credit and then potentially directing a lot of reshoots themselves. I think the biggest difference is that obviously the Justice League situation was cut short because of personal tragedy in Zack Snyder's life. Right. Uh, and I don't think he had completed a director's cut, which is a thing that would become uh, a point of much contention. Ac- I mean, according to like, I think that recent Rolling Stone article, he had presented like a two hour and 40 minute mm. cut to Warner Brothers. But, okay. uh, but I mean, like, I'm not saying they're one to one, but they're fairly close it, just in terms of like the credits and like the you know uh i guess the status of the new person coming in to like rework the movie and this is yeah. d- d- was obviously just better received i don't see anyone out there screaming about releasing the edwards cut the edwards cut right um although I think Ben Mendelsohn at least has confirmed that there is a drastically different cut of this movie that exists. I'm, um, I'm so, very curious. I know. I'm what so it's like. Cur- I, I would have loved to. I would love to know the behind the scenes on this. Uh, we do have a few tidbits though, right? Um, from Tony Gilroy giving an interview to Brian Koppelman's The Moment podcast, where he says, "Quote: um, I've never been interested in Star Wars ever, so I had no reference for a reverence for it whatsoever. I was unafraid about that, and they were in such a swamp." They were in so much terrible, terrible trouble that all you could do was improve their position, end quote. So he doesn't mince words. To be fair, this was like years after the movie had come out. And what was interesting about the movie coming out, also another big difference, Patrick, as you indicated, is Gareth Edwards was game um, in all of the promotion for the movie. Like he was yeah. presented as the director of the movie. Like he was very positive. He played ball, basically. Like he was. It was very like professional. Like right. he wasn't like, uh, you know, there's some directors that come out. They're like, oh, they took control away from from me. Uh, he was not like that at all. He it's was also, very like, like yeah. Gareth Edwards is uh, he he might have written Monsters, his first movie, but he's never generally been like a, a writer director. I think like, he seemed based on just interviews and stuff like that. He, it seems like he was like 
pretty open to collaborating with Gilroy yeah. to like just improve the story. Because like a lot of writers worked on this movie. Like it started John Knoll had the idea like a decade earlier, and then like Gary Whitta wrote it, and then Chris White, who actually has a final screenplay, wrote it. Uh, our final sc- screenplay credit. And uh, and then, like, apparently, I think before Gilroy, like, even, like, Chris McQuarrie, like, did a pass on it. Mm. Like, so many people uh, touched the script for this movie. Yeah. And in some of the footage, you see kind of glimpses of sequences that were entirely shot that got cut. And it's just all very intriguing, you know, because it usually doesn't happen this drastically on this high profile of a film. Um, and it's rare. Justice League is a great example. This is another example of like the movie's done. The execs think it's not in good shape. They bring someone in to basically ghost direct the movie and shepherd it to its completion. And this is one of those things where this was in the era when Disney had promised there will be a new Star Wars movie in theaters every Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so they had <laughs> they had that release date. And I will say this. I was thinking about this while rewatching the movie last night. It, it it's really brought me back to what felt like this really kind of wonderful time really <laughs> of three years, 2015 through 2017, where it was like, oh man, it'll be our nice Christmas tradition. Go to see like a Star Wars movie at Christmas each year. And it happens once a year. And it's like the big Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun. And then so quickly... Disney is just like, yeah, what if we release Solo six months after the last one? And uh, and granted, I don't think everyone would have loved that movie if they'd waited a year. But right away, it, it was just like, you, ha- you, you had this nice tradition that everyone was into. And like, why did you mess it up so fast? Mm-hmm. I do think that timelines were a big part of the making of this movie. But you had three movies. Uh, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Uh, which I think came out before Last Jedi, I believe. Yeah, right? yeah. 2015, but, Force Awakens, 16, Rogue One, 17, yeah. Last Jedi. Okay, but you have Rogue One, you have uh, Rise of Skywalker, and you have Solo Star Wars Story. Each one of those films had a troubled production. In fact, each one of those films basically had a different director than the one who ended up completing the film, if I recall yes. correctly. Right? Uh, yes, that, that's Colin true. Trevorrow David. was supposed to be Rise of Skywalker. Right, so um, uh, I mean, I mean, he wrote a whole script. Was uh, yeah. getting started on casting. Uh, that yeah. was pretty far along. Who's to say what caused all this turmoil and trouble? A lot of people pin the blame on Kathleen Kennedy. I, I don't think we know enough about the machinations of Disney as a company to really make that conclusion. Um, but I think it is very obvious that like each one of those movies was uh, had a troubled production. And that's evident in scenes, things like things, scenes in the trailer, not making it to the final film, tonal imbalances, plot lines, and uh, character arcs that feel like heavily abridged or cut short. Uh, and it's unfortunate that that is kind of the current legacy of the Star Wars live action films. Um, but all that said, that's that's all the lead up to to this, right? And and I think it's important to cover that because that will inform some of our conversation about the movie is like what happened, like what happened with this character and why was this character, you know, and uh, why is this character, why do they like each other now all of a sudden, you know, and that it will explain some of those inconsistencies is that like, yes. 
Tony Gilroy came in after the movie was done. And also, really interestingly, spoke about the Trouble production on this podcast with Brian Koppelman. And Disney still hired him to come back to Andor. So clearly they were like, this guy has the goods. Like that's what was really you know funny what I mean? is I was reading an interview with him last night, and I'm I think this might have been maybe around when Rogue One came out, but he was asked if he had uh any interest in returning to Star Wars, and he's like, Nope. Uh, absolutely not. So no interest at all. Uh I I I I that that was a work for hire thing. I did it and I have no intention of returning. And and then you skip ahead. I was reading the, like the New York uh the, the New York Times interview that came out with him uh like a day or two ago. And uh and he seemed like so excited about it. He's he's like I am I have worked as hard and put like as much of myself into this as I have on literally anything I've ever done. He's like, I am so proud of this. And uh, and his thing, he's just like, look, I don't care about fan service. I don't care that much about star Wars. It's just that this is a huge, this universe is like this huge tapestry where you can tell a million stories. Uh, And, um, and he's like, and, and you know, there was room for the story that I wanted to tell. And again, he keeps saying stuff that gets me excited. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And and so anyway, I, I say all that because typically you know, the making of these movies is like under lock and key. There's like stories that leak out, but like the fact that he went on record and was like, the movie was in bad shape and I came in and saved it. Like people at places like Disney generally don't like that. But the, the fact that he said that publicly, it was written up a bunch of places. They hired him back. It's like, they know this guy is enormously talented, right? Like they would only do that if they're like, this guy can do something that no one else can do. Right. And I believe that's true. I think Tony Gilroy is enormously talented. And, um, and I hope he gets a chance to flex his muscles more in the Star Wars universe. So uh, anyway, okay. All that said, that's all the hullabaloo behind the movie. But he is not the director of Rogue One. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Not the credited director. Um, but all, all that said, Patrick Williams, let's start by talking about overall thoughts on Rogue One. And then we can, and then I want to highlight like specific scenes and moments. Uh, maybe we can go through the movie a little bit chronologically. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Rogue One is a movie that I like with a lot of qualifiers. Because it's a movie that I think has so many like genuinely fantastic elements to it uh, and like some really exciting filmmaking. Um, and the script never fully clicks together for me. And, and, and so I, I find it very frustrating, I think, because I, I can see the like – if I if if I squint and cock my head to the side, I can see the like truly great movie yeah. that I think it could be. Uh and and there's just um because like like I like I, I really like the just I mean it has a really cool premise as much as it is a movie that's basically built around like oh well it's two hours to explain one line of dialogue in a new hope. Like that aside, like Diving into like the rebellion pre Luke Skywalker, uh, and like, and I, I know we've talked about Gilroy so much, but Gareth Edwards' like decision, which absolutely makes it through to the final product of 
shooting this, as he said in a million interviews, like a war movie, but basically like, you know, the word wars is in the title. And, um, but this is the first time that you've actually had like messy shootouts in like crowded city streets where, yeah. where like what seems like trench warfare, basically with, uh, the Scarif, uh, closing. Exactly. Action set piece. That yeah. kind of stuff. Like, like the sequence that I, I always come back to is the one on Jeddah, uh, where you've got like, it actually feels like, oh, an occupied city by like, mm-hmm. you know, a colonial yeah. uh, army. And yeah. you've got like children crying in the middle of like, uh, like, like a battle with just like buildings blowing up. You actually, like the, the, the rebels feel more like, or at least like uh, Saw Gerrera's group feels more like terrorists than they're generally portrayed as. And I think that's like, like it brings a new, uh, like, a new cinematic language and like visual vocabulary to Star Wars, which I think is like actually exciting. Obviously, we all love Greg Fraser as a cinematographer, and I and Greg Fraser's visual approach for this movie I think is so important because like that basically when they decided to like launch the Disney Plus shows with the Mandalorian, they just went just get him back and make them all look like Rogue One. Rogue One is just how like mm-hmm. we want all our Star Wars TV to look now. And yeah. I think like that's a lot, like even like the way it's lit with like like much like 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 the lighting is is uh so off like there's like these dimly lit rooms uh that it feels like so naturalistic. I think that's all really really exciting. Uh the cast is amazing. A lot of fun characters. I think it, it. I just wish, like, and I, and I, and I, I, I maybe it was in way worse shape uh, before Gilroy came on, but there's just a, a lot of stories. I'm stuff. told it was in terrible, terrible shape, and that you could only improve their position. Better. I, I, I have heard this once or twice before. <laughs> I can't remember where, but there's still just uh, story elements that don't click together for me like I want them to. Like I'm not I'm never as emotionally engaged as I want to be. And oh also by the way, uh CGI Peter Cushing always sucks. Uh and uh they should stop doing that forever. They won't. Um but every time he's on screen, it kind of kills whatever scene it is for me. Yeah. So just Hire a different actor. I I am begging you guys. Like, I mean, in that case, hire... he doesn't even have to be in the movie. <laughs> it's one of those things. Yeah. Like, like, okay, uh, can I make two giant notes for Rogue One right now? If I'm a studio executive and I'm looking sure. at the script, uh, and maybe maybe the fans will get a little bit less excited, but I don't care about the fans. Um, take Tarkin out of the movie. Just have another, like some other, like give uh, Krennic some other boss mm-hmm. uh, who's not uh, a distracting CGI dead person. Um, also, take Darth Vader out of the movie. Mm. I think I think much Vader more controversial. It is. I genuinely as much like the final Vader hallway scene. I'm like that's a fun cut scene in a video game. Um, the story is basically over at that point. No, yeah. none of the. Of of the characters who are actually who the story is about are in that scene at all. It's just there just to get the fans all riled up, and then it goes straight into CGI young Carrie Fisher, which also sucks. Yes. Uh, and it also seems dumb because you have Vader be like fighting these guys, and he's like, "Ah, oh, you just slipped out of my 
like like through my fingers and then immediately they get on the blockade runner and we know oh like 10 minutes later he just catches up and gets on that ship it just <laughs> it, it feel it that is the kind how, of patrick patrick how will you know exactly how vader ended up in the ship in episode four unless they explain it to you oh. visually at the end of this film it's that that's that ending with the mm-hmm. uh with the, the, the just indulgent, like let's show Darth Vader being a badass, even though it it has no bearing on the story. Going into uh, creepy CGI Princess Leia, that is like I, I look at that, and I'm like, oh, that is just a sign of yes. what Star Wars was to we become. Didn't, we didn't know what it was going to become later, right? But yeah, yeah. it's it's. I I would agree that that is like pure fan servicey stuff that does not really serve the themes and story of this film, right? And it's just like connective tissue, you know, but hey, it's like the uh, Nick Fury walking at the end of Iron Man, you know, it's like, but that was confined to a post-credit sequence. This is actually like part of the movie, right? It was, and also that that Nick Fury thing was actually like really like laying the groundwork for stuff to come. Also introducing a new character. This is just... It's the thing you saw already. It's the thing you know from before. Look, to quote a video that I made myself several years ago, this, like, the thing with Darth Vader at the end, it feels like when they just do, like, an HD remake of an old video game where it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's the game that you love, but now the graphics are better. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, Okay. cool. You You have the technology to make Darth Vader, like, more of a badass than than they could in the 70s. Congrats. Anyway, let me share let me share some of my thoughts, overall thoughts, okay, uh on Rogue One a Star Wars story. I remember feeling very similar to you when I watched it the first time, you know, which is that there are a lot of shortcomings with the script and kind of I don't feel like I really know any of these characters and they don't really have much time to hang out and spend with each other and get to know each other really. Some of the arcs, the character arcs don't really work super well or feel pretty rushed. It feels like there's just whole scenes or sequences missing from the movie. And I'll mention a couple of them in, in, the, in the next few minutes. Uh, but freed from my expectations of all that, rewatching it again, I had a great time. And here are some amazing things about Rogue One. First of all, it's beautiful. This is one of the best looking Star Wars films ever. Absolutely. Yeah, just the way. Yeah, they would keep being positive because I ended up getting more negative than I wanted to. Yeah, mostly sure. just about the end of the movie. So, so like you, you, you swing it back in the other direction. There's so many cool visuals, uh, and just your your. There's so many places you're going. Ring of Kafreen, Jeddah, Wobani, Yavin Four, like all these places, and they all look Star Wars, but they all look really different too. And there's like there's one I don't remember which one. I think it's Yavin that has like that statue. That's or maybe it's Jedi that has that statue that's like tipped over. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, okay. So, well, um, I mean, Yavin is just the one from A New Hope again. Uh, like that's the one familiar planet. But no, Jedi has because like the thing with yeah, Jedi, Jedi has that statue that's like right like, because that yeah. was like a, a place almost like like a like a holy planet of mm, like yeah. where like like that's a statue of like a, a Jedi knight, right? 
Right. And you can imagine, like, it's just like, wow, that's such a cool idea of this thing that's been tipped over and now it's like half covered in dirt. Like, uh, you get a sense of the history of that. I place, mean, right? this is my thing. I mean, c- considering that, like, uh, so much of Star Wars, especially stuff that J.J. Abrams did, was, well, Star Wars started on a desert planet. So, what if we just had all desert planets all the time? And uh, so it's just uh, everything just looks like Tatooine. Um, and Mandalorian does that a lot and also just goes to Tatooine. And here I'm like, th- they have one desert planet in this movie, and yet it's a desert planet that has like a twist to it uh, mm-hmm. that has this new element and feels like a new place. And I'm like, there is what you're saying like the 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 attention to detail and yeah. like the imagination put into like making distinct new places i want to shout out the place where we meet cassie and andor which is like seems like this sort of like space station thing of like two two places that are like yeah like one's like flipped upside down and they like connect in the middle do you know what i mean yes it's the ring of kafreen trading outpost yes uh, it looks that, amazing yeah. It's it's spectacular. Every location in the movie looks amazing and awe-inspiring and new. And it really kind of like expands the aperture of how you can view the Star Wars universe. So it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Some of the characters are really memorable. I would actually argue probably the most memorable character is played by Donnie Yen, Chira Imwe. He's amazing. And he rules. and I have, you know, watched many Donnie Yen movies. I've watched like the Ip Man movies and like a bunch of his other stuff. And uh, when he comes in and makes a huge impression right from the get go, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And this is, I think this is, was like the first time we've seen uh, an Asian American character in the Star Wars universe live action movies. I think it might have been because um, this is before Last Jedi, right? Yes. So, uh, and just seeing, seeing, I, I hate to use the uh, the cliche, but seeing someone that looked like me in the Star Wars universe, really powerful thing. Um, but yeah, then now obviously there there are more East Asian characters in the Star Wars universe now, and uh, and I'm glad about that as well. But I mean, he, oh, ob- yeah, go ahead. I'm so sorry to cut you off. I was going to say uh, a noteworthy thing about Rogue One is really uh, in like the main group of the cast, Felicity Jones is the only white person. Yeah, that's true. And it kind of goes to this idea of that this is like a a ragtag group that's been assembled from all these different people uh, and and is trying to take down like a, a massive monolith. Other thing I like about the movie, Patrick Willems, is – and we're going to spoil Rogue One. We already have, but we're going to spoil it even more, right? They've all seen is, it. Uh, everyone dies at the end. And what what an idea. What an idea. Uh, and that's something that Tony Gilroy said he really latched onto is uh, everyone dies at the end. So the movie is ultimately about sacrifice and like, how do we get each of the character to a place where they're willing to sacrifice? Why would they want to sacrifice? Uh, and we can talk about how successful they were uh, in that regard. But uh, apparently there was like an earlier version of the script where uh, Andor and Jin Erso survive. Uh, and I have to imagine that the temptation from Disney's perspective for these characters to survive is massive. It's like, I want to have future spinoffs of them. I want to make action figures of them. I want them to be in future films like, you know, rise of Skywalker or whatever. And it's like, um, 
but they shut the door on most of that when they had them killed. Now, obviously, we're getting an end or prequel series, but uh, there's no Jen Erso in the future from this point right. forward, and that's that's a bold move, and I admire that a lot. And apparently, they never even shot the other ending. Like, like what I was reading about was that Edwards just assumed that they wouldn't let them kill everyone off. Yeah, and uh, and then Disney was like, "Oh no!" Or, or I shouldn't say. The thing with Disney is like, you know, Lucasfilm is really kind of its own company within Disney. So it's really like the the Lucasfilm people who are like making the these decisions. But they were they were like, no, we we like the dark ending. Let's do it. And so that was that was the thing that like like Gilroy didn't change that or anything. That was always the ending, like like from like what they originally shot, which I think is cool. That's like I think it's one of the best things about the movie. It's it's and it's also like really beautifully done too. You know, um, I was watching the movie with my wife. She was weeping at the end when they're going down the elevator and they're kind of in each other's arms and they know that they're about to die. Uh, and then they go to the beach and they kind of like celebrate the fact that they made a contribution to this fight. It's very beautifully done. It's very emotional. The visuals are great. Like, and so and you also get the thing with uh, Krennic. Uh, uh, on the planet also yes. just realizing that he's just utterly disposable and that they just even that they're using his own weapon <laughs> and he's just like a casualty. Yeah. Uh, pretty cold blooded of the empire, you know? And, it, and so, and that's the thing is at the end of the day, the question for a movie like rogue one is, does this movie improve your understanding of star Wars? Right. Is your, Viewing of Star Wars Episode Four richer, having seen Rogue One, and I think to some degree the answer is yes, right? Because a you understand that there's a reason why it's so easy to destroy the Death Star, you know, which is, has been a joke for a long time, but now there's an actual legitimate reason. Um, don't know why they built it kind of the same way two times, but you know, let's put that aside. Well, they had to destroy it a different way the second <laughs> yeah, time. Yes, it's true. That's true. But it's like still seemed pretty easy uh, in Return of the Jedi. I'm just going to put that out there. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't even finished yet. They, uh, <laughs> you know, way easier to access. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the the whole thing of why the whole thing of building a second Death Star is is a problem that I've had with Return of the Jedi for a very long time. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. that's a conversation hey, I, for I'll say day. it makes Star Wars Episode 4 better and it makes Star Wars Episode 6 worse. Yes. <laughs> um, but you also get a sense of why that person did it that way and like that person's background. You know, I'm talking about Galen Erso and also all the sacrifice it took to get the plans, right? And uh, And how difficult every step of this process must have been so that ultimately when Luke destroys that thing in episode four, it, it is in some ways more satisfying. It is like the completion of an arc that begins in Rogue One. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think like they did a decent job when it comes to delivering a good prequel, right? After watching Better Call Saul, the prequel series to Breaking Bad, I have like whole new criteria for what makes for a good prequel. And it's really just two criteria. Number one, introduce new characters or characters that we didn't know that we can get invested in. If it's just existing characters, then we, we already know what's going to happen to them. Like I want new characters that we don't know what's going to happen to them so that we don't, you know, there's some suspense there, but um, yeah. And that certainly this movie does that. There's a bunch of new characters that I, I care about and I think are cool. And then also, does it make the later thing more interesting? And I think this one does that as well. So that's kind of the case for Rogue One, Patrick. 
right? A uh, lot, a lot of good stuff in this movie. I, I think worth considering. Well, the uh, to like go off of what you were just saying, the thing that I kind of like that's a little bit of a sticking point with me always for with Rogue One is on the one hand, yes, I think what this movie does does actually like strengthen the movie that comes next chronologically. It does like like it functions as a good prequel in terms of like, oh yes, like uh the new information it gives us about the larger story does actually it it's a good, a healthy contribution that strengthens the overall thing. Um also, you know, as I said before, the uh, the 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 new the, the new uh, like the new cinematic way it portrays things that are familiar to us also very exciting. Uh, the thing that that I, I that I kind of butt up against is, but okay, outside of it, like being a prequel to Episode Four as just a standalone movie, like like how good is it as a standalone movie? I uh, because like and I I think you know you alluded to some of this earlier when you said that you know it feels like there are chunks of the movie missing uh and and a thing that I always run into I'm just like man it feels like initially we don't know Jin Erso that well if she's ostensibly the lead of the movie and then it feels like she jumps through several steps in like her character arc that I guess happen off screen. And, uh, and I'm just like, 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 like that's the thing. Like, like there's so much like good stuff in this movie. It's contributions to like star Wars mythos are great, but I'm just like, like, man, other than having good actors, I wish I was more invested in like almost any of these characters and, yeah. and their relationships with each other. And uh, well, uh, let's dive into some specific scenes, right? Yeah. So I'm going to do a pretty quick speed run through the movie right now. The movie opens on Urso's homeworld, I guess, where there, he's he's living out his days farming peacefully. Uh, and I just want to say, like, amazing evocative opening. No big Star Wars fanfare. Uh, and you kind of see, like, the outline of this planet. And then you see, like, what looks like rings of a planet with a beam of light shooting through it and it's just like wow like you're kind of like i think i know what that is i think i think that's like rings of and then you you kind of need to spend time figuring out it's like a very beautiful mysterious evocative opening krennic who's played by ben mendelson awesome villain great he, space cape he's so you know? good the cape rules Let, but also having a villain who's just kind of like a middle manager who's yeah. not like you know, the head of the empire, who's just a guy who works for the empire, uh, who's like in charge of like getting a project finished on time. It's, it's a fantastic choice. I agree. He lands on the planet. The the main stakes of the movie are set up where he's like, I need you to come back. Uh, Galen Urso's wife, Lyra gets murdered or, or killed, you know, defending herself, whatever you want to call it. And then, uh, Jin Urso runs away hides out in a pre-determined hiding position. And then Saw Gerrera comes. is like, let's go. You, we've got a long journey ahead. Cut to decades later. Jin Erso is a grown woman in prison. That's when we meet Andor at a separate location at the Ring of Kafreen trading outpost. Very Blade Runner vibes. And uh, we meet Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna. That's the guy from the show that we're going to be covering, Patrick Willems. 
and he meets a an informant named Tivik, uh, who is about to go leave and go back to Jeddah. Uh, and he's like, some guy named Galen Urso sent this Imperial pilot who's defecting. And then some stormtroopers happen upon them. And then Andor just straight up cold-blooded murders the two stormtroopers and his informant. A critical moment to pay attention to, especially as we get into the Andor series. Uh, but yeah, the way that Andor plays that scene, he is, I, I, I don't think there's no regret. He's not like a complete sociopath, but he clearly is like, I don't think this is the first time he's done something like this is kind of my sense. I, I Right. I, and also I think part of it is because like the guy has like a messed up leg or something or basically like, yeah. can't get like he knows that the guy is going to slow him down. And like if he tries to take and him with possibly get them all caught and in trouble. Right? Exactly. So it's just like it, it's a like, you know, necessary casualty for the greater good that that he's fighting for. I mean, I mean, that scene is so important just just in terms of like part of the movie's mission statement, which is. Let's portray the rebellion in like, you know, not as just like a, a a pure beacon of light in the galaxy. It's like no, think this is complicated and messy. There are like you know moral shades of gray going on. Uh, not you know, not everyone is is as like you know as as innocent as old Luke Skywalker is when when he joins. I think that's really really important. The, my my beef with this stretch of the movie is that i think the 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 opening is great and setting up Jin as like okay she go like her father is taken by the empire to work for them her mother is killed she goes into hiding and then this weird and then weird forest whitaker comes and like pulls her out and is like i will protect you um my issue here is that it it jumps around to so many character introductions and these characters are all separated that i feel like that especially on this viewing, I was thinking I would really like to know a bit more about who Jin is now and what is her life and what is she doing and what are her priorities and how does she feel about everything. And even though she is the lead character of the movie, she's just one of many characters introduced here. And to the point where I'm thinking, like, could they have just combined the Cassian scene with maybe he, then he's going to get her and they're at the same place and like bring them together earlier on to like establish like mm-hmm. their like their relationship more um i just i think the movie really skips over a lot of like characterization with jin that for for sure but I, I don't know that i don't know that i agree that the issues happen in the first act of the movie we're just introducing people i think act 1 is is completely fine in my opinion it's act 2 where i think most of the problems are you okay know? well well but, but I, also, like, um, when it comes to the introductions, there is some characterization of Jin when uh, basically the rebels go to extract her and she kind of completely messes them up and then, like, tries to escape before K2SO takes her out. Right. Uh, that, that kind of gives you a sense of, like, who she is, you know, but you're, we're not hanging with her, right? And in fact, I think one of the biggest problems of the movie is later on, right? Okay, so. She gets captured. They're like, hey, you got to go meet Saw Gerrera and you got to figure out what's going on with this pilot. And then we got to get to your dad. Uh, and then Saw Gerrera and her have this very intense meeting where he, she, she's like, you know, the last time I saw you, you were 16. And, uh, you know, you, and she's like, you left me with a blaster and nothing else in a hole. And I'm like, wait, was this the hole from the first scene? No, it's a different hole. 
And it, basically, there's this whole sequence of events that happened between these two characters that we never see in the movie. Right. Uh, and it's very odd because we saw this other, we saw this first flashback to their, when she was a kid and then we meet her much later. And then there's all this stuff that's happened between them that we don't even know about. And in fact, the only thing that's alluded to is when that relationship ended, mm-hmm. which we also don't see. So it's just like, it, it, it's really weird to communicate, to have the flashback and then communicate the rest of that via, um, Via dialogue, you know especially because when he shows up, you know, at the end of the cold open at the beginning, yeah, you think, oh, then these two are going to be together when we see them, yeah. and oh, yeah, then instead totally. they only see each other; they're only together on screen once in the entire rest of the movie, and it's the last time they ever meet. Yeah, it's and, very, it's just very odd. And, very odd. I mean, yeah. this is part of my thing where again, I, I like a. There's a lot of cool stuff happening when they're introducing uh, Bodhi, uh, the pilot, plays by uh, Riz Ahmed, who's like going to to Jeddah to uh, to meet with Saw Gerrera. And there's the whole thing where there's like the weird tentacle creature that like r- sticks a tentacle in his ear to like read his mind and stuff like that. And but it's and again, I'm not saying I have like the immediate fix here, but it's jumping around to so many different characters here that I feel like uh, Jin and what she wants get kind of pushed to the background a little bit yeah. to the point where even like when Cassian brings her to see Saw Gerrera, for a while, she's just kind of like hanging out in the background while other people are talking until she finally kind of like forces her way into the conversation. And, and uh, I just... Despite her, you know, like, you know, uh, like hitting back some of the rebels who like pick her up from the the prison transport early on, she's very passive for a while, kind of just getting shuffled to different places by other people. Uh, it takes a while for her to like be like making choices and driving the story forward. And I get like all I'm really saying is I just because she is the protagonist, I wish she. I wish the movie treated her as a bit more of a protagonist uh, instead of just like one of of a big tapestry of characters. Yeah, um, I, I think that's fair. But again, I, I didn't have I don't have a problem with like meeting so many characters. I have a problem with Jin's arc being so shortened and I have a problem with Saw Gerrera's arc being so shortened. So maybe I am saying the same thing as you, but I think we have we have similar issues with the movie. So anyway, Generous was captured. They go to, you know, the Rebel Alliance briefs her and they go to Jeddah. One of the things that I think is great about this movie is what happens to the Bodhi character. He's clearly like an Imperial defector and, and Riz Ahmed is like obviously a, a, a great actor and I believe him from the start that he's like an Imperial defector and and then when Saw Gerrera subjects him to basically mental torture and possibly mental annihilation, uh, the first of all, the idea of Saw as a, a zealot, I think, or they're extremist, I think is the term that's used, right? And you you use the word terrorist. I think that's also uh, accurate. I, yeah, I like the idea of, hey, the rebellions are actually messy. Like, you got Andor offing folks left and right, you know, including informants. You got Saw Gerrera on the other side, who uh, is taking defectors and like destroying their brains, you know? And it's like, Oh wow. This is maybe the, the Alliance, the rebel Alliance is not really as good as we thought it was. And, and the idea that you can have these like little factions split off and arguing with each other is, is really cool. Um, What's great about rogue one is you, you get a sense of what Imperial occupation is like and what, what the world of resistance might also be like. We see the Jedi, the city of Jedi and the temple and, 
Uh, we meet Shirat Imwe and his buddy, and well, uh, and Baze Malbus. You know, yeah, Bays, pay him, yes. pay him the, the the proper respect. True enough. And they're like people who used to guard the temple, but now that the temple has fallen, they don't really have anything to do. Uh, and you do also just a, get Donnie Yen beating up stormtroopers with a stick, which right. is and it's, it's a, a really cool, the just a cool character in concept and execution. Uh, the idea of a guy who's like not a Jedi, force sensitive, blind, believes in the force. It's again, it just helps to like fill out this world in a really fascinating way. Um, also, I gotta say, I loved K2SO in this movie. Like, at this point, we've seen like funny droids in Star Wars for decades now and with varying degrees of success. But I laughed at almost every single line that K2SO said in this movie. I just thought yeah. he's basically like, in some ways, an audience surrogate, like just kind of saying what you might be thinking in a weird situation like this. Uh, so Alan Tudyk, I think, plays K2SO. He did an amazing job. Yeah, they they've managed to find a new... I guess a new take on like the droid helper who goes along, you know, with, with the protagonist, sorry, a, a British accented droid helper. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've done a lot of those. And, and, and this is like a, a genuinely unique one. And wait, is, is he in Andor? Um, I sure, I'm sure I can't comment one way or the other. Actually, um. <laughs> my guess is he'll show up in Andor season two. Mm -hmm. we'll see we'll see so anyway uh, they go to the city and there's a massive firefight firefights like pretty pretty well done you know it's like a pretty good action scene i mean it's um, chaotic uh and 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 messy and like grungy in a way that yeah. star wars firefights aren't yeah yeah so then like she finally goes and meets saw guerrera and they have the interactions that we discussed and yeah i mean what i love about the saw guerrera character despite the fact that I feel we didn't learn enough about him. Like we, we know so little about what has happened in his life, but first of all, like the, the visual is amazing. Like he's like basically a cyborg at this point. Yeah. He has like robotic body parts. He needs to breathe through a mask, like Dennis Hopper and blue <laughs> Valentine, you know, like he's all, all kinds of like stuff has happened to him, obviously. And so just like you, you can tell this guy has been through some terrible things which I'm hoping we're going to see some of in Andor, you know, like to, to some degree, get a sense of that character more um, because he, he is in the poster for Andor. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder what they're going to fill in with Saw Gerrera stuff. But the, the cool thing about Saw Gerrera, I think, is this idea of the guy has become basically completely unhinged. Like he is, his, his mind no longer accepts reality. He's become a paranoid sort of uh, like paranoid person living in seclusion and isolation, uh, increasingly fueled by his paranoid fantasies um, to the extent that he's like hurting people who might be wanting to help his cause. Basically, mm -hmm. That's like a interesting idea for a character, you know? Uh, and I think it's for the most part, well executed, but we just don't know so little about him. He, the guy gets like, I don't know, 20 lines in the whole movie, right? Like, he, we just know very little about him now, and also a lot of it, while yeah. he's talking, we're trying to fill in the gaps about like him and Jin to be like, yeah, okay, so like, like what's so like what happened like in all the time since he like came and rescued her from like the the underground right. bunker, right? Yeah, and it's not like it's not like clearly laid out or anything like that. It's just like hinted at, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. I think th this to me is part of what gets a little bit muddled because there's all this stuff with with like the 
the rebellion's relationship with him as this extremist that like you know they're kind of on the outs with and like his different approach to rebellion but then you've also got the aspect of it of like his relationship with Jin and trying to fill in the stuff there. And so there's a, there's a lot going on with him in like a very limited amount of screen time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for, it, it, the thing that I really like about that whole sequence is uh, she views the message and then from Mads Mikkelsen, who we haven't yeah, from mentioned Mads yet. Mikkel- yeah. From Mads Mikkelsen, who's like, Hey, I built, I'm going to get my revenge because I built in a weakness into the thing. And I think Felicity Jones, who plays um, Jin Erso, just like acts her heart out in that scene uh, where she's just kind of like in anguish and like collapses on the ground because, um, yeah, it's just it's very powerful because it's her first time reconnecting with her father in a very long time. And to know that he not only thinks about her, but like has a plan for her, you know, in this way is um, it kind of sells it for me, you know? Um, Yeah. In in a way that I think is really important because if it, basically she's sing, she's doing a lot of heavy lifting in that scene because you really need that scene to land for the rest of the movie to work. Right. I think, you know. So um, then um, they decide to test the Death Star, and uh, they're like, "We're not. We don't need to destroy the whole planet. Let's just have a little sprinkling of Death Star juice on on the, on Jetta." They destroy Jetta City. The whole sequence is incredible. I think. And I really feel like you get a sense of what I, I don't want to exaggerate too much, especially because Oppenheimer is going to come out next year. But like, I really feel like you get a sense of like, this must be what people who felt like they were testing the atomic bomb must have felt like when you, when you see the destruction of Jeddah and just like the shockwave and the whole planet is like, it's not just like limited to a city and it's done. It's like the explosion lasts for minutes. Oh, and I- it, and, and it's it, it is like it has a perverse beauty to it, you know. Yeah. Like where you're, yeah. Anyway. I mean, I mean, both with Jeddah and then especially when they fire the Death Star at Scarif at the end, it's like it basically forms a mushroom cloud. Like the imagery yeah. is like very deliberately, yeah. like, uh, like an atom bomb blast. Yeah. Like that—that that is what they're dealing with. It's like, oh, the you know the Death Star for the Empire is basically you know them making the atomic bomb. Them building yeah. their super weapon that can wipe out an entire civilization. Yeah, and but the way the way the sort of execution because it, it's it doesn't do exactly what an atom bomb would do, right? Like, it, atom bomb doesn't like raise the ground up, you know, in the way that it does in in the in the movie. Um, so, and then there's a scene where you, you like see the Krennic and his goons looking at it from above and they're talking about how beautiful it is. And it's also like disconnected from the chaos that's on the ground and like cutting back and forth between those things. is just a really effective, uh, effective editing and storytelling, I think. Yeah. So, from, from, anyway. from Krennic and crew's perspective, like on the death star, they might as well be looking at like a beautiful moving abstract painting. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, then they, <laughs> they, barely get away in time you know they've taken on uh chira and uh Baze, right saw dies in the explosion that was so weird to me he's like uh hey i'm tired of running goodbye and it's like okay what like feels like you've taken great steps to stay alive like <laughs> in the course of this you know like he's he clearly has a whole like secret lair and everything and he's just like okay you guys go on without me and it's like i guess he can't run why? 
why? No, 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 no. He he doesn't say he doesn't say I can't run. I'm too weak. He's like I'm tired of running. He's like I'm tired of like being in hiding. I think he's saying. Right? What you might think now that they have just learned about this Death Star that like oh suddenly like we could like we have a chance at stopping this super weapon. You'd think that would, if anything, get him more invested in his cause <laughs> instead of being like, "Ah, eh, you guys got it from here." It's just, it's a bizarre decision, and I think it's just like we need to figure out a way for Force Whitaker to not be in the rest of the movie because and, it's too it's too many characters, right? And also wanting to to give him a you know a, a like stoically looking into the face of of death, despite the fact that that's what the whole ending to the movie already is. So right. they, like, why why couldn't Forrest Whitaker have been on that beach with them? You know, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. doesn't make any sense. Anyway, there is this sequence where they go find her dad, right? And David, uh, we we have to talk about the sequence because this this is a real sticking point for me. Yeah, this is probably like this whole situation is probably the most challenging part of the movie, right? Okay, I just maybe yeah. why the, the setup the setup is that. Uh, Andor has been told by Rebel Command that he needs to kill Galen Erso, right? And so they're like, okay, let's go find Galen Erso. Uh, we just want to at least make sure he's cool. Like, uh, and the story that they're telling uh, Jin Erso is like, we're going to extract him and bring him back. But in fact, they're just going there to kill him, right? So, and, and there's a pretty cool sequence where they kill him and then Krennic brings all his guys out and he's like, who of you was responsible for this leak? And okay, fine. I'm just gonna assume it's a group group effort. You know, like he's delightfully evil in the whole movie, and then he shoots all the people that aren't Galen Erso, and it's like, oh, that's really evil too. Like, love everything Ben Mendelsohn is doing in the movie. Um, and then Andor gets up there, and he's about to take the kill shot, but he's like, no, I can't, I can't do it, I can't do it. Why? We don't know. Uh, but it doesn't matter because Alliance bombs drop on the whole thing and kill Galen anyway. Well, yeah, because they sent in a whole X-wing fleet yes, to yes. then just like blow up, uh, like you know, I, I guess the the facility where they design the Death Star. So, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna try to lay this out because <laughs> I was thinking through it while I was watching the movie mm-hmm. again last night, and I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. entirely get this. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the rebellion hears that Ga- they know who Galen Erso is because he's like the head guy involved in like designing the Death Star because he's like a, an engineering genius. They've heard that he sent uh, a pilot to defect who uh, apparently has like a message for Saw Gerrera. And then, and they're like, oh, we want to know what what's going on there. We want to know why this guy, why this defector was sent by Galen Erso, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, the one way we could potentially get in with Saw Gerrera because he's like a hard man to deal with is if we can find Galen Erso's daughter, who yeah. who he knows, who will maybe like put in a good word for us and like get him to talk to us. So th- that makes sense. What is the point of killing Galen Erso? Because I would have thought that what they would want is to extract him to get information about the super weapon from him uh like like the whole point like if he if they know that he sent this defector pilot to like mm-hmm. bring a secret message wouldn't wouldn't the rational thing to do be like well let's since he clearly is trying to work against the empire let's get him out and use his knowledge against them what's the point of killing him 
other the other to me other than to well, to do what they were doing yeah. with Cassie at the beginning, which is to show the rebellion in in like like grayer shades of morality. I don't think it's that much of a stretch, to be honest with you, Patrick, because I think the idea is uh, maybe they're still refining the the weapon. Maybe the weapon's not done yet. And or maybe and slash or not and or um, and slash or maybe. Wait, is that uh, how they came up with the name and or maybe? Yeah, (laughs) maybe they're going to have future super weapons that improve on this, that they're going to use Galen to help build, you know, like. It's not too much of a stretch to be, you know, it's like, um, you ever see Wind Talkers, you know, John Woo Wind Talkers? And it's like the idea you know, is like. I, I never the, watched Wind Talkers. No one seemed to like it very much. Uh, it's not a great movie, but the idea is that these uh, Na- the Native Americans like carry this code uh, with like in- important information. And that if uh, they're ever enemies ever threaten to capture them, like you, you must terminate the people who have the code in them so that they can you can protect the information. Right. And so the idea is that he's critical to their efforts, so they want to kill him. I, I, that's not too much of a stretch for me to imagine. Um, to me, I thought I, I didn't think that's where you're going with this. I thought where you're going to go with this is like Jin Urso's plot, because there is a scene earlier with Saw Guerrero where he's talking about how imperial flags fly throughout the galaxy, and she says it's not a problem if you don't look up, which is an awesome line. Uh, and she says, you know, the Alliance, all has ever brought me is pain. And you're like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess the Alliance has really made her, made her life really hard. And you kind of get a sense of like why, you know, Galen working for the Alliance would be a problem. The Alliance then murders her dad in this scene. Right. Uh, and then, uh, literally like two scenes later, she's kind of hanging out with the Alliance and being like, let's go and fight against the empire. She's not um, just hanging out with the alliance. She is she has become their most passionate dedicated member mm-hmm. in one scene. As in yeah. like she has gone from being like Is there swearing on this podcast, David? Yeah, uh, let's let's avoid. Let's avoid it. Just uh, just okay. say F it instead. Okay. I I should have checked ahead of time. So she's okay. So her at once we jump ahead to the present after the opening flashback, she's like, screw everything. I don't I don't want to be involved in everything. I'm mad at the world. Uh, I don't want to join any side. I hate you all. Right? That's that's where she is. Yeah, I'm with and, you. And then as soon as she learns that her father is still alive and still loves her and is like plotting against the Empire to like help destroy their their big weapon then understandably she's like i want to see my father again i care about him and uh, but then also like you said he is killed by the rebellion and so i get her having loyalty to her father uh and like maybe wanting to you know carry out his wishes but just the jump to her making passionate speeches, like yeah. at this round table, as in like it's all the leaders of the rebellion, who we, <laughs> people who we know are galactic senators. We've got <laughs> Bail Organa, Jimmy Smith himself at mm-hmm. this meeting, and then her, this girl who doesn't like them, who just who who got brought in as like a prisoner like a day before, is there giving a speech about how 
rebellions are built on hope and we have to do this is um again i'm not opposed to the idea of this i'm just like we skipped the execution a, yeah we, we skipped the whole reel basically as yeah. in she needed like another week of her life and other yeah. events to happen to get her to that point and also she should be madder at the rebellion for or being, killing her dad who she has wanted to reunite with for years well yeah. again this is my thing of like not i'm not trying to just script doctor the whole thing but but like if the empire killed her dad and there was not and cassian was not assigned to kill him if they were trying to extract him maybe uh, it would it would it would make a lot more sense to me. Yeah, that it would she, make a lot more sense for her arc. For exactly her arc. for what right, they're yeah. trying to do, and um, yeah. and 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 this is the thing. I'm just like, I see what they're trying to do. I see what the arcs are. Uh, and I'm 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 just like I I wish it it fit. I wish the pieces fit together more cleanly. I agree. I agree. But she gives her motivational speech. She gets a bunch of rebels involved. And then everyone heads to Scarif. Now, Scarif as Isn't a, they steal a ship and do it. Yeah, off they the steal books. a ship. In it. Yes. And Scarif is like an awesome design for a planet. The idea of like a tropical planet with like imperial installations on it, because no one would. If you're in a tropical place, you would never build the stuff in the way that they do it, right? Like, so just to see that together in that juxtaposition is so fascinating. You know what's brilliant uh, and, about Scarif? Also, yeah, uh, the Star Wars movies have. Always had a, a tradition of um, filming in places that are really unpleasant to film. Yeah. And here, finally, they were like, wait a second. What if we filmed this movie in, like, the nicest place in the world? <laughs> like, yeah. we spent years in deserts and, like, Arctic landscapes. Mm -hmm. What if we went to the Bahamas and just chilled out? It's a very simple setup for Scarif. Uh, it's just like we got we got a shield gate. We got to bring it down. We got to beam the uh, plans into the onto the ship, and that, that's. I love it when the stakes are simple. Everything looks amazing. I will say it doesn't really make any sense. Like uh, there's this idea of a shield gate. Really cool idea. Makes absolutely no sense. Like from an energy perspective, you know, like how would you have enough energy to like cover an entire planet? You know, it doesn't make any. But it's like what a cool idea of. The shield gate that you need to like. I mean, you cannot access the planet surface except for this one tiny hole. You know, it's like yeah. I think it's it's a really smart move. I mean, the whole thing with Star Wars planets is like I'm convinced every planet in Star Wars is really like the size of a city because at every single time the people will <laughs> they'll arrive at a planet and just be like, well, the people we're looking for are somewhere on this planet. Can you imagine if someone came to Earth and? And was like, well, David Shen is uh, somewhere on this planet, so let's just land at a random point, and then we'll run around, and we'll eventually find him. But, like, they're very small. Also, uh, you know, there's sound in space here. Like, you know, nothing really makes sense. But I love the security idea of it because, you know, they're storing their most top-secret files on this planet. So what if they made yeah. it so that they have total control over every person who enters or leaves yes. through one tiny little like entrance way that's yeah. really smart I agreed i mean i what i'm saying is like technologically probably impossible but you know uh really cool idea you know and, and it looks amazing right? you know it's all technologically impossible a hundred percent hundred percent um but 
anyway, there's a big firefight, and there's some amazing moments of the firefight. Okay, I'm gonna list a few. Chirrut's last moments, right? Like, I'm one with the force, and the force is with me. And he's like walking out there, and then he dies in his friend's arms, and it's just oh, heartbreaking. Um, there's a moment when Riz Ahmed is trying to get this transmission to the admiral up in the ship, and a grenade. Someone just throws a grenade. And it like lands in his ship and Riz Ahmed like looks at it for like a second and then it explodes and he, you know, and then at that moment you, you realize like, holy crap, they are starting to actually off these characters left and right, which I did, you know, the whole movie you've been with these characters, none of them have died. And so you're like, oh, they're, they're just going to be with us for the whole movie. But then they start dying one by one and it is shocking and sad. And your my brain is like processing like, oh my gosh, who else is going to die in the rest of the film, right? Um, any any specific moments from the the battle you want to mention? I mean, th- there's also, of course, the Star Destroyer getting disabled. I, mean, I don't think we've ever seen before. And then they push it into another Star Destroyer, which is incredible, right? That might be my favorite, just because, like, I'm always a fan of when they introduce a new Star Wars ship that has a very specific function. And when they mm-hmm. bring in the Hammerhead ship... <laughs> Uh-huh. which is smart. And and it's the thing where, you know, Star Destroyers are so large. They're they're, they're like they're, they're they're huge. They're so big. And the thing is obviously in space, you know, you're in the vacuum of space. You 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 give a thing like some like inertia, some some momentum and it's going to keep moving that way. So, it just kind of make it's, it's a good strategy. These Star Destroyers yeah. are right next to each other. What if you just kind of bump one enough so that it just <laughs> crashes into the other one? It's like, it's such a, I mean, uh, as, as I, you know, hate to invoke controversial topics, but uh, as someone who has always been very pro uh, the light speed ramming in Last Jedi, because it was the, like, when I watched that in a the theater, I was the like. The Holden maneuver. The Holden maneuver. Um, when I watched that in the theater, I was like, Oh my god! What this is like? I I never even th- thought that that would be, like like it makes so much sense once you finally see it, and it's such a cool technique. And and the same thing here. I'm just like, yeah, just kind of like gently like ramming one of their their stationary like giant battleships into another because they're in space and it will just move in that direction, uh, and especially to then get it to crash through like the 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 shield generator or whatever um yeah. that's j- just purely a, a, like them thinking about like okay how do we how do we use the the pieces in this world uh in in new ways that's a really clever one i loved all the dog fighting around the shield generator thing too and the shield generator at one point like opens up and you see tie fighters in the shield generator station come out of it and it's like oh my gosh and it really brought back like the old feelings of watching um original star wars with all the the dog fights but not fighting a death star for for once it's you know? true i i mean there's two things i want to say here um my one not even like like a problem that I have with the, the this this big final set piece, but just a, a thing that holds it back from like being like one of the, like the all time classic Star Wars battles for me is just that um, we don't as much as it's like fun to watch the dogfight, we don't know any of those characters who were mm-hmm. up there, and so when it's cutting to like random people and pilots, I'm just like, I mean, it, it, it's it, it it's always been. Uh, not to, uh, 
every Star Wars opinion has to be a controversial one. But one, I take a problem I've always had with Return of the Jedi is the final Death Star battle is really cool, but um, but of like the main three, like uh, Luke Han and Leia, none of them are involved in it. Like mm-hmm. Lando's there, uh, but but like we don't have one of our absolute core characters in that space battle, and so I. Uh, and, and and so kind of like here, it's like, you know, it's it's very fun to watch it. It's visualized and choreographed really well. The effects are great. Um, the ship designs are great. I just wish there was like at least one character who we had some kind of emotional connection to up there flying around. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's, that's a General Radis, you know, the, the, the Mon Calamari guy is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and- actually, sorry. The other thing yeah. I was going to say, because we've kind of talked around it, but haven't like said it deliberately, because you were just talking about the thing with the uh, the Tie Fighters coming out of the Shield Generator. Yeah, the thing that that uh, Gareth Edwards' greatest skill has always been finding unique ways to visually communicate a sense of scale. Yes, uh, he did it with like his, you know. Low budget debut film Monsters was all about that. Uh, I think it's the best part about his Godzilla movie, shooting like the whole thing from like a human's perspective, so that just like a foot coming down in the background has such weight to it and feels so immense. And the ways that he communicates scale throughout this movie, uh, whether it's like shooting the Death Star from unique angles, whether it's showing a Star Destroyer like like hovering inside the atmosphere uh, on Jetta, are are seeing like the, the Death Star like, showing a Death Star eclipse a sun. You know exactly. There's so many incredible visuals throughout this movie that are like that. Where it's like, oh my god, he actually found a new way to shoot this like the Star Wars thing that we've seen in like six movies before this. And and throughout this, there's so many things like that. And uh, and like I. To the point where, like, no matter how much Tony Gilroy did come in uh, and, like, change stuff around, you can still feel, like, Edward's fingerprints throughout this. And, yeah. And, 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 and a lot of moments of awe, you know? And he, uh, that's yeah. what his movies inspire is, like, awe in, in, the, in the light of, like, these massive structures or creatures, basically. It's true. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the script at this point becomes very workmanlike, I would say, where... Everyone gets to have their final confrontation. You know, Krennic somehow makes it up to the, the thing at the same time as Jin Erso, and they get to have a little final confrontation. And then uh, Andor gets up there and he shoots Krennic, but then Krennic is alive, so that he gets to be alive when. Also, it seems know, like like uh, Andor is dead, but then oops, he's not dead. He's not dead. Yeah, uh, he, he he fell what you thought would be a massive distance, but fortunately there was a little landing right there. Um, and then, uh, you know, and and then uh, Krennic is alive to see his own creation turned upon himself, which is like another. That's again, great. Which I, I think it's great to show, like, there's no honor really amongst any of these people, right? Yeah. The Alliance, you know, is willing to kill, murder their own, and so are uh, the the Empire. You know, they're they're kind of some might say they're different shades of the same kind of people. You know, um, oh, perhaps. Uh, we'll probably learn more about that in Andor. Anyway, so uh, then they go to the beach. They have this big emotional moment. They they don't like kiss or do anything romantic, which I think they hold each other, you know, and that's kind of beautiful. 
Um, but I, I kind of like that there was no like romance or any weird thing that came out of nowhere. Like I that, mean, they right? didn't have any time for that. Yeah, they didn't have any time. And then the Darth Vader stuff you already talked about. I don't think we need to talk really about that anymore. But you know, we're coming to the end of our conversation. Uh, Patrick, any thoughts about this Scarif sequence or, or the movie as a whole as we wrap up here? Um, I think I think this part's all pretty cool and pretty effectively done. There are some parts where I do I do wonder. Could we, like, for instance, Chirrut Imwe, Baze Malbus, you know, many people's favorite characters in the movie. Uh, I do wonder, like, could they have gotten some kind of arc that, like, maybe reaches its completion during mm-hmm. this sequence? Uh, you know, could there, like, like, would it make sense to have a thing? Because, like, Chirrut is, like, such a believer in the Force and all of that, you know, he has his mantra that he repeats constantly. Like, he's like the like the one person who cares about that, and everyone's like, "That's a bunch of baloney." And uh, like, I don't know, like, would it, would it have made sense to like maybe in his like dying moments, like have him actually like move something with the force or something just to like, you know, just j- just to, I I guess you know pay off this thing that has been there throughout the whole movie. Cause like, again, these characters are great. I love them. Uh, they do feel fairly static throughout. They're just kind of there along for the ride doing their thing. And, uh, and it would be nice to give at least a little bit of like, you know, feel like, like they've been on some kind of emotional journey that, you know, that's going somewhere. But, uh, it's I all, think that's a good call. Out. I think that's a good call. Out. I will say that every character gets a heroic death. They do. You know? And they do. They do get a heroic nice. death, and I, it actually, and the, the movie kind of like kind of like takes time to like pause on every death to some degree. It right? does, and that's nice. I yeah. I I do think Bodhi's death, uh, Riz Ahmed's character, is the one that stands out the most to me, just by feeling so unlike Star Wars. A guy mm. who's like he's he's like mid conversation he's mid conversation and also feels like he's winning like he's on he's yeah, on like a yeah, high yeah. note he's and on then, a high note yeah and then yeah. just and dies in like look Chirrut and uh and Baze have actual like pretty heroic deaths yeah Bodhi's just did, did okay to so even right exactly yeah. okay oh, k2so yeah. really gets a heroic death yeah um considering he's not technically alive but Bodhi just gets an uh, he gets the unceremonious death which the way he dies to me is is the kind of thing like that's representative of the best of Rogue One, which is showing you Star Wars in a way you don't usually see it. Like you don't see characters die like that in Star Wars. If characters die in Star Wars, it's because they get dramatically like impaled with a lightsaber and mm-hmm. like stare into their their enemy's eyes as like the life leaves their body. They don't just die because like a grenade just bounces into yeah, just like bounced into the thing. Yeah, by accident, you know, maybe not even intentionally. Right. Right. And yeah. and and that that one really stands out because it just it it feels so jarring and so far from what we usually expect. And I think it's really effective. And as much as I am always had to see Riz Ahmed die because he's a wonderful actor that I have been a fan of for years. So all that said, Patrick Willems, pretty solid movie in my opinion. <laughs> pretty solid it, movie. It, I mean, it has some nice things about it. I like it a lot. It does. But it's um, I I like it with a lot of qualifiers caveats. there yeah. and, uh, yeah. and 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 caveats. But it, it is the kind of thing where it's like, you know, it's always nice to see a. Like even if it has like a bunch of script issues, it's 
2022, it's nice to watch a big budget franchise blockbuster that uh, has like a visual style and uh, and and really and 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 it's just like like it feels like oh oh there's like actual like filmmaking happening here. This mm-hmm. is like and it's willing to take chances. It's willing to take chances with the characters in the universe. In yeah, a way that. Um, I think is rare these days. So. And, uh, and we and we hope happens more. Well, I think that's going to bring us into this week's episode of Decoding TV. Uh, but we will be reviewing and recapping Andor, which is premiering on Disney Plus on September 21st. And episodes will come out Thursday night at latest, uh, possibly earlier. We'll see. Uh, it might change from week to week. We'll, we'll try to get them done as quickly as we can. Um, if you want to support this show, you can always go to decodingtv.com, sign up for a paid membership, get ad-free episodes and bonus episodes. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash decodingtv and also on Twitter, twitter.com slash decodingtv. He's Patrick H. Willems. Find him at youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems and twitter.com slash Patrick H. Willems. I am David Chen. You can find me online anywhere you go. Uh, but Patrick Willems, thanks for chatting with me today, man. I really appreciate it. Dave, it's been a a pleasure as always, and I'm excited to do this more over the next couple months. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of Decoding TV. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.